Hello there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Speaking of today, we have a beefy segment, or rather a beefy update, on the Armenia-Azerbaijan war, and what it may mean for themselves, and what it may mean for Russia. I also want to talk today about the way in which wars are fought, and why they aren't so different from the way they were fought a 100 or 200 years ago. So stay tuned. versus Azerbaijan conflict. So we talked a little bit about this the last time, but I will just do a brief recap. So it's fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the province within Azerbaijan known as Nagorno-Karabakh. It's also known as Artsakh, but uh, I'm, I will be referring to it as Nagorno-Karabakh. All right, so the conflict has entered its ninth day of fighting. Uh, Russia and France uh, have continued their calls for peace, uh, along with the American ambassador to the Caucasus. Um, Both Armenia and Azerbaijan, however, have rejected these calls for peace. Now, last time, it was only Azerbaijan that had rejected the call for peace, whereas Armenia was uh, more pro-peace talks, but now things have changed as we have entered the ninth day of fighting. Armenia says that talks cannot happen while military maneuvers are being taken. And uh, the Azerbaijani president, Ilham Aliyev, says military action will not cease until Armenia sets a timetable for its withdrawal from the Nagorno-Karabakh region and the territories in Azerbaijan proper that Armenian troops currently occupy. Now, the last time we spoke, uh, around 16 people were confirmed dead. Now, uh, a week later, that number has jumped up to 230. And we don't even know the official casualties for the Azerbaijani military, so that number could be higher. I read one report claiming that the casualties were closer to 400. That's, That's a lot of people in just nine days, especially since... It's only been a week since the last time it was 16. Turkey stands firm on its backing of Azerbaijan. Uh, We mentioned that they sent militants from Syria and Libya over to Azerbaijan. Not many, but something to take note of. Uh, As far as I know, they haven't sent more, but the ones that they had sent have arrived and are probably causing trouble. For the Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia, as Turkey supports Azerbaijan. Now, the Turkey-sponsored militants, however, have changed the game and have probably led Armenia to its conclusion that it shouldn't uh, engage in peace talks. Because now the Armenians are justifying their position partially as fighting terrorism. So, now they have entrenched themselves, as well as... <clears throat> the Azerbaijanis have basically 
said that they're not going to leave. They're not going to stop until they get Nagorno-Karabakh back. So both sides are now entrenched. And that's before you get to the troops on ground where they are literally entrenched. And so uh, Armenia, back to Armenia, they say they are ready to trigger their alliance with Russia. So I'll get to that later uh, when I get to the segment about what it means for the Russians. Iran still remains silent, but the potential for their involvement is still there because they have a very large uh, minority population within their country. They are ethnic Azeris. Azeri is the ethnicity of the people living in Azerbaijan. So if there was meaningful pressure from the Azeris, Iranian could be forced to get involved. But um, as far as I can see, it would be a, a kind of a lose-lose situation for Iran. Because if they were to back Armenia for whatever reason, they would uh, piss off their Azeri minority population. And there are more Azeris living in Iran, close to the border with Azerbaijan, than there are Azeris in Azerbaijan proper. So that would be a mess for Iran. And if they backed Azerbaijan in an effort to appease the minorities, they would basically piss off the Russians. And needless to say, Iran doesn't want to do that. So I, for now, I can understand why they have remained largely silent on the issue. And moving forward, I see them maintaining their neutrality for as long as they can. Because they, they don't win in any of those situations. Now, Armenia and Azerbaijan, since uh, the last time we spoke, they have begun mobilizing. The last time it was just uh, Nagorno-Karabakh that was mobilizing. And Azerbaijan had declared a state of emergency. But now, Armenia and Azerbaijan are mobilizing. Azerbaijan has a population of close to 10 million, 9.9 million, with around 86,000 men under arms. Most of that is their land forces. Armenia has a population of around 3 million, it's 2.9 million, and they have about 45,000 men under arms, again, mostly for the army and air force. But if they're mobilizing, then you could expect these numbers to jump up into the hundreds of thousands. And... When you look at the region that they are, that they're in, there's no room to maneuver with that many people. Because if you go, if even if the conflict were to spill out into neighboring Georgia, because I don't, I don't expect them to start fighting in Iranian territory or Turkish territory or Russian territory for that matter. But Georgia, it would be easier for the fighting to spread there and get away with it. Even if they were to start fighting in the country of Georgia, not the state, the country, there's still no room for that many men mobilized to fight a war of movement. It would be, it would be trench warfare. Now, Azerbaijan, I mentioned that last time that their oil and gas infrastructure is at risk. I uh, have dug into that a little bit more and found that they export about 650,000 barrels of oil and gas a day. So, 
that could potentially go offline if things get worse. Because they are shelling each other. They're, they have their artillery set up and they're shelling cities and towns in each other's cities. Nagorno, the Nagorno-Karabakh city of Magadiz, was captured by the Azerbaijanian military. And there was a video of that. You can look it up. And they, take, they took down the flag and replaced it with the Azerbaijani flag. In the video, the soldier taking the flag down, kick the flag lands on his boot, and he kicks it off. So you can, you can just see where things lie with these people, with their kicking the flags off as though it were some type of as though someone had pooped on his shoe. So it's it's something it's interesting to look at, and I mentioned that it was going to be like trench warfare. And that people were mobilizing. And when I saw these videos of people crowding the uh, the recruitment stations, I, I just couldn't help but think about all those World War One films, if you ever saw them, where you had millions of men going, volunteering for the army uh, when World War One started. And everyone was happy, everyone was cheering, they had smiles on their faces as they got on the trains to go fight what would turn out to be the worst conflict in European history to that point. They didn't they didn't know World War Two was gonna happen, which is why they called it the Great War. And when I look at these videos of these Armenians and Azerbaijanis flooding the recruitment stations and being applauded as they leave, and then they get on the trucks to go to a military camp to be trained to fight. I, I just can't help but think of that. And that being said, I can't help but think of where this goes because it's looking like it's going to be potentially worse than when they fought the first time uh, back in the 1990s where around 30,000 people died. Then the casualties I mentioned went from 16 confirmed dead the last time uh, we spoke to 230 and potentially 400. And they they haven't finished their mobilizations. But now both sides are refusing to... They're refusing peace talks. And they're refusing to answer the calls. uh, Not Armenia. Azerbaijan has refused to pick up the phone when the Russians call. And Russia is one of the main countries trying to orchestrate a peace here. (sighs) Both sides are dug in. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, There's probably been more fighting as we're talking now. Those numbers I mentioned are probably going up by the second. And as they mobilize and start fighting on more and more fronts and the conflict becomes more constant rather than on and off and limited to shelling, it'll be troops and tanks and UAVs. Because up till now, it's just been artillery and drone strikes. But with both sides mobilizing, now you're going to have columns of hundreds or thousands of men infiltrating territory. And with the constant shelling and artillery fire going on, it's not to end the drones, which can very easily be used for reconnaissance. 
it's not too hard to see those columns of men just getting blown up. And then the casualties shoot up by 100, 200. Or a battle goes wrong and you see casualties spike by 1,000. Further fueling the feud between the two as they will use those deaths to basically justify why the other side is bad, why the other side is terrible, why the other side needs to be taught a lesson, and why the other side is so bad that you have to fight for your country, and it's it's, it's a mess. It's a really big mess, and it could potentially spill out into something greater, because it's effectively become a proxy war at this point. <clears throat> well, it hasn't become a proxy war, but with Turkey openly backing the Azerbaijanis and Armenia potentially ready to call in the Russians at any moment, there's your proxy war. The proxy war would start right then and there, and who knows where that goes. We, we don't know where that would go if Russia and Turkey were to go to come to blows like that. No, it wouldn't be the Turkish military. It would be their militants and the fact that they are backing Azerbaijan. Similar to how um, the Soviets in China did with North Vietnam and North Korea. Whereas America sent in troops to South Vietnam and South Korea. Except instead of America, it's Turkey. And instead of Vietnam and Korea, it's Azerbaijan and Armenia. So, we, we'll just have to wait and see how things turn out there. But, uh, I mentioned that we were going to speak on what potential this conflict means for the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis. And what it may mean for the Russians. Now, last time we spoke, I talked about my view on the potential for Russia's grand strategy to put the borders of either the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire back together. Part of that means conquering the Caucasus. So Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Georgia is already under occupation. Again, this is the country, not the state. Russian troops are already backing the uh, rebel provinces, should I say, in Georgia. Uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, I believe they are. And Armenia is a part of Russia's military alliance, the CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization. Azerbaijan is boxed in by that, because Russia is in Georgia and Armenia is a Russian ally. Now, if the fighting uh, continues, Armenia and Azerbaijan will lose lots of human capital. Because there's no room for them to maneuver. They, this is a very target-rich environment. Especially if they start attacking, like, deep into each other's territories rather than fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh. Because the cities are right there. The cities are right there. Let me see if I can find Yerevan. There's Yerevan. Right. Yerevan 
the Armenian capital is farther away. Well, their capitals are far away from each other. And the Azerbaijanis have lots of land between them and Armenia. Armenia has a lake that would force our Azerbaijani troops around it. So their capitals will be relatively safe. It's the other towns <coughs> that would need to be worried about. The other towns where the fighting would take place and lives would be lost. If a battle were to take place inside of a town, uh, that would greatly increase the civilian losses. And urban warfare is not friendly to troops either. Well, not friendly to the attacker anyway. So that would increase the casualties as well. There is potential. I wanna. I really want to drive this home that there is potential that this could be worse than the first time they fought in the 1990s. They fought again in 2016, um, but peace was mediated relatively quickly. Now both sides, again, are rejecting peace. And... Uh, it could be worse. It could be worse. That's what that looks like for them. They are really confined by the Caucasus Mountains, the upper and the lower Caucasus Mountains. But what I want to focus on now is what this conflict could potentially mean for Russia. Now, we will move into the Russian win-win scenario. So, what is Russia's win-win situation here? Well... Russia has seemingly failed to forge a peace between the two belligerent nations. They were successful in the past. I mentioned uh, the 2016 skirmish between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And the Russians were involved in mediating the peace in the 1990s conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But now they can't seem to bring the two sides to the table it seems odd so if they could succeed in the past why can't they succeed now this is the part where we go into speculation I consider this the fun part Russia might not have interests or rather I should say they might have interests in not help stopping the conflict what do I mean by that well, let's get into the scenarios. Scenario 1. Armenia and Azerbaijan fight. Armenia calls in Russia. Because, it, remember, Armenia is a part of Russia's military alliance. If Armenia calls for Russia's help, Russia is legally obligated to come to their help. Armenia calls in Russia. Russia, legally obligated to assist, moves in. Russia would be the deciding factor in the conflict. They would end the war with sufficient force of their own military. And they would occupy Azerbaijan. They wouldn't leave. Because that would be stupid. Why would they? Azerbaijan and Armenia have fought multiple times before. Armenia is your ally, not Azerbaijan. You want to stop the fighting? You occupy Azerbaijan. Boom. Conflict is over, and now the Russians control the Caucasus. 
their southern periphery is secure. Because remember, they have troops in Georgia. They are basically occupying the country. Armenia is a Russian ally. If they occupy Azerbaijan, that's it. The Caucasus de facto belong to Russia. They are now a de facto province of the Russian Federation. And that's it for their southern periphery, at least in the Caucasus. There's still Central Asia. But that's scenario one. Potentially really good stuff for Russia. Scenario two. Armenia does not call in Russia. Both sides tire each other out. The Armenians and the Azerbaijanis fight it out for a prolonged period of time, even after mobilizing, likely getting stuck in trench warfare because there's no room for those hundreds of thousands of men to maneuver in this really small geographic space. I mean, look on a map. Look on a map, go across the Atlantic, keep going past Europe, go to Turkey, go east of Turkey, and bam, you're in the Caucasus with Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. There is no room for that many men to fight. There's no room. A war of movement would be stopped by a wall of bodies from the other side, which would make offensive maneuvers uh, almost suicidal in nature, unless you had overwhelming assets like drones and artillery fire. But both sides have drones and artillery and you factor in that they're fighting in hills and mountains like rough terrain which makes it harder to fight the defender will almost always have the advantage they will almost always have the upper hand attacking would be next suicidal there's no room for them to maneuver so they would tire each other out in what would likely be trench warfare but in a modern day trench warfare and again makes you think of World War One and the catastrophe that followed the start of World War One. They tire each other out and then the Russians step in to mediate a peace. Russia then locks both countries into a strategic subservience for the foreseeable future. Or flat out occupies both of them. It wouldn't. They wouldn't consider Armenia an occupation because Armenia is their military ally. But it would be an occupation that neither side, Armenia or Azerbaijan, would be able to say or do anything about because they'd be. They would have exhausted themselves fighting each other, and now there's no room for them to fight the Russians. Not necessarily that the Armenians would want to fight the Russians. Eh? They're a part of Russia's military alliance, after all. So, you can see that's a major win-win for Russia. Whether they get involved directly or not. Again, scenario one is Armenia calls in the Russian alliance. Russia steps in, they win. Scenario two, Russia doesn't do anything. Swoops in at the end, and they take the entire thing for themselves. Again, they win. It's it's just a big win-win situation for Russia, should they seize the opportunity. Well, 
I'll just preface that, because you never know what the Russians are going to do. I certainly don't. But it's fun to speculate. So, what else did I want to talk about? Uh, oh, right, right, right. I wanted to talk about the way in which wars are fought today. So, I was listening to some news, and basically, uh, this guy was talking about how armed conflict is basically outdated, and wars won't be fought like that in the future. It's gonna be, it's gonna be information warfare and cyber warfare, and there are lots of people who say that if that's the case, then we are already at war, us being American, we are already at war with, say, China, because they've been hacking us and engaging in information warfare for a long time, but I was watching this uh, this documentary series uh, from Hillsdale College, and uh, from Hillsdale College on the Second World Wars. They were basically going over that in, uh, I guess, in reference to Victor David Hansen's book, The World Wars, and he ma- makes an emphasis on making it plural, because it's different wars, at least that's his argument, and I, I guess I would agree, but in that, um, in that documentary series, uh, Victor, he basically goes over, uh, when he covers air power, I, I should say, when he covers air power, he goes over the thinking of people at the time between World War One and World War Two, And there were these people, he calls them the architects of air power, who claimed that now we have the invention of the airplane. And it was, again, the airplane was a major factor in the later stages of the First World War. He brings up that there were people who said that now that we have the airplane, wars will no longer be fought on the ground. It's always going to be in the air. So either you build an air force or you lose, basically, is the uh, a really a really short summed up version of their idea that air power would be would be the war not like nothing else like and you can kind of see the credence to their argument when you look at how the pacific theater in world war ii went where the aircraft carrier had more range than the battleship the airplane was the deciding factor but when you look at the european theater or even just look at the later stages of the Pacific Theater, the airplane wasn't enough, not by itself. It was great. It was a very important asset. But it was not the war. The war was fought in the air, of course. It was fought at sea, and it was fought on land. You had, obviously, the Pacific Theater. You had the Battle of the Atlantic. You had the strategic bombing campaigns uh, for the U.S. over Japan and for Britain and later America over Nazi-occupied Europe. Air power was not enough. 
the British, when they were on their own, they engaged in a strategic bombing campaign over Germany. And the Brits were in the war basically from the beginning, from 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland. So they were bombing the Germans for five straight years before D-Day. But yet, the bombing campaigns by themselves weren't enough, especially before the Americans came in. They did damage, but it, it was not going to win them the war. The British, both in World War II and in World War I, had control of the seas. They had the British Navy. And they blockaded Germany at sea. Again, they did that again in World War II, but that did not bring Germany down. So, sea power alone didn't work. Air power alone didn't cut it. Sea power and air power combined was lethal, but it still couldn't do it. It took land. It took the ground forces. It took invading it took invading Nazi Germany on from the beaches of Normandy and then pushing westward well, well the Soviets pushed westward pushing eastward as fast as they could uh, to basically secure the beachhead that was the final nail in the coffin the combination of all three uh, and I'll call them dimensions of warfare you have the first dimension land the Second dimension, C, and the new, at the time, the newer dimension, which was air. Now, there's also a fourth dimension. Well, I guess I'll call it dimension zero, the secret dimension, which is intelligence. Because if you know where your enemy's troops are, you can fight them more effectively. So, I guess that would be the secret dimension of warfare. And when you combine all four, you had this killing machine that really couldn't be stopped given that you had a sufficient number of men. Because you could you could have all the best all the best intelligence and naval assets and airplanes that you wanted. That wasn't gonna do you much if your enemy could just march a hundred thousand men into your capital and you capitulate. So it was important that to have all of them. And that's what they figured out. That's what all sides figured out uh, as World War II went on. And that was Victor's argument as to why the architects of air power were wrong. Well, his argument was that nobody lives in the air. People live on the ground. If you want to stop the war, you have to basically fight people on the ground or use the air to deliver bombs to people living on the ground. So when I hear people talk about how armed conflict is outdated, it's not going to be planes, tanks, and uh, ships. It's going to be cyberspace and information warfare. I can't help but think of that documentary series and compare people who say that to the architects of air power. Because, I mean, think about it, think about it. If your enemy marches an army into your country, you can have the best information warfare. You can have the best cyber warfare. You can hack them silly. 
but it, it's not going to do you any good if they get 100,000 men into your capital and you capitulate. You can try to stir up a rebellion, but if they have an army, they're going to put that rebellion down. If if they occupy you, you can try to stir up a, a resistance movement. A resistance movement that, that will be shot and executed by the enemy's army. So, when you really put it into context, um, cyber warfare and information warfare, this fourth or fifth or, or what is it, sixth generation warfare, whichever generation that we're in now, they can't cut it by themselves, just like air power and naval power couldn't cut it by itself. It will ultimately boil down to the deciding factor, and that is land. Do you have an army? That's the deciding factor. And uh, I'll get back to that in just a minute. Okay, we're back. Um, we were talking about the army. Uh, and the army is the deciding factor. I was talking about that. Do you have an army? Because you can have, again, all the airplanes you want. You can have all the intelligence. You can you can have, nowadays, you can have all the hackers in the world. You can have all the best propagandists running information warfare. But if you don't have an army, well, that's it. All it takes is one declaration of war. Or not even a declaration nowadays. The enemy just marches their troops or... They send in militants to your country that they disavow. <laughs> cough, cough, Saudi Arabia. Cough, cough, Turkey. They just send militants in and you lose. Because you do not have an army. The land forces today, as well as land forces back 100, 200 years ago, the army is the determining factor. So that's, that's why I really want to emphasize... Mm, uh, warfare today with that question that question do you have an army if you don't have an army you cannot fight you cannot fight or at the very least you can't win you, you can't win especially if your enemy has a, a, a half a million men and they start throwing those at you these new dimensions to warfare cyberspace and information and the secret dimension of intelligence again these factors they are very big now they're very big and they're very useful and they are lethal when you combine them with one another but if you do not have land forces if you do not have an army especially an army that is worthy of the name you you're not going to win you're not going to win we have been lucky that since World War II, we haven't had many conflicts, if any, between the major powers. But uh, who knows how long that'll last and what that means for said major powers. And when uh, it comes to an end, people will ask, do you have an army? Armenia has an army. Azerbaijan has an army. They can fight. 
and they can use all those other assets. They have drones, they have tanks, they have artillery, they even have little navies in the Black and Caspian Seas, but they have an army. If Armenia did not have an army, they would have to rely solely on the Russians for their defense. Could you imagine if Armenia had no army, if Nagorno-Karabakh had no army, or uh, Azerbaijan just goes, we're going to take this back, and what happens to those architects of cyber power, as I will call them now, the architects of the new generation warfare, what happens to them? Their entire thesis falls on its head. The entire thesis collapses, really, in, in spectacular fashion. Because you can you think you think Armenia and Azerbaijan aren't working around the clock to hack each other and crack their uh, naval codes and military codes. They're they're pulling out all the stops. They're mobilizing now. But if they didn't have an army, they wouldn't be able to fight. Uh, flip the scripts. Flip the scripts. Azerbaijan. What if Azerbaijan had no army? They start this mess, and then Armenia just walks into them, and they have to rely on those what, seventy to four thousand Turkish militants. That that's not gonna stop Armenia. Armenia has forty-five thousand men. What are those four thousand men gonna do? Nothing. Nothing, especially if the Armenians have. Uh, drones. The Armenians can whip out all the new generation uh, tools and dimensions. What would stop them? Nothing. Nothing would stop them. This is why you need an army. This is why you need an army. And uh, I guess I should segue into another thought that I just had, which is that what this uh, has basically led me to believe this little conflict now, this latest conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, is that conflict can happen. And it can happen fast. Because this fight, it, it came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. It caught everybody off guard. Not even the people who are in the region were really prepared for this to happen and no one was prepared to stop it no no one was prepared people were especially not prepared for both sides after just nine days of fighting and really it was less than that because today is the ninth day of fighting and I have this news from a day or two ago no one was ready for both sides to refuse peace talks, especially with how fast the last conflict was resolved. No one was ready for this. And even though we knew that this was a potential conflict zone, no one was ready for things to go down the way they were. Conflict can happen, and it can happen fast. It's just a... It's scary think about but I guess that's just reality really it's uh, part of life things can change and they can change fast and 
the winner is the person who is prepared and can adapt. Because, remember, people were, people were, I, I guess I should say people were prepared for a conflict to break out between these two. Because it had happened multiple times before. But I guess the real problem was that no one was able to adapt to the rapidly changing uh, situation on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh. No one was able to adapt to the fact that now Armenia is not engaging in peace talks. People have yet to adapt. The ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the region, the French and Russian delegations, they have yet to adapt. And I guess until they do, or at least until the Armenians and Azerbaijan's knees tear each other up or tire each other out, I guess there won't be an end in sight. And this is not the only potential conflict zone. There's the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, Turkey has engaged in talks recently. Those talks are not conclusive. We don't know where those talks are going to go. Things could turn around. And I mean for the worse. Things could go south. And speaking of south, there's the South China Sea. Another potential conflict zone. There's the East China Sea. There's the Himalayas. There's India and Pakistan. There's lots of potential conflict zones around the world. That, and many of them, we've forgotten about. There's the Russian frontier, the former Soviet space that is in Europe. There's the, fr- there's the English Channel now. Uh, people forgot about the French-English rivalry, but now with the French uh, basically going back on their promise to keep migrants from crossing the English Channel which the Brits paid them to do, similarly to how the EU paid Turkey to keep the migrants out, France has failed in keeping the migrants out, and in some instances have basically just watched the migrants cross the channel until the British Navy shows up to escort them the rest of the way. So now the French, uh, combined with playing hardball on Brexit, have in my opinion, begun to rekindle that Franco, that Anglo-French rivalry, the geopolitical rivalry. People who are fans of history know how many wars those two have fought, especially before Germany came around, when they then decided to team up or put their differences aside for basically the balance, the balance of power in Europe. There's the there's the Balkans. The Balkans could explode again. Something could happen. Who knows? What will it be Albania, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia? This is the place that started World War 1. It could explode again. There's there's lots of conflict zones around the world 
And there are lots of countries with the capability to do things in those conflict zones as well. And the main takeaway from this latest uh, bout of fighting from Armenia and Azerbaijan, again, is that conflict can happen, and it can happen fast. And it can catch people who are prepared off guard, and it can do in people who can adapt but were not prepared. So the takeaway is be adaptable and be ready as as much as you can of course no one no one can really predict the specifics of the future but things can happen and they can happen fast things can go really good but they can go worse faster than they can go good or at least they tend to so that's always something to look out for and i guess now that we're coming to the coming to the end of our talk together, I guess I should go over the last thing that I wanted to bring up, and that I mentioned the Americans and the peace between major powers that started after World War II. This is uh, known as the Long Peace. Others refer to it as Pax Americana. It's the peace imposed on the world in the aftermath of World War II, by largely by the Americans. The Soviets were there too, but the Soviets were contained by the Americans. But the Americans outlawed war in their sphere of influence. And a couple examples of that is the Suez Crisis, where Britain, France, and Israel tried to uh, fight Egypt when Egypt nationalized the Suez. America backed Egypt, you were not allowed to declare war. You were not allowed to start war in the American-led uh, order. You were not allowed. Fighting was outlawed. And that's how you got this explosive growth in the Middle East ver- instead of Imperial Europe just walt- waltzing in and occupying them again to take the oil for themselves. Instead of that, you have Dubai, you have Saudi Arabia, and the House of Saud. You have the the microstates of Qatar and Kuwait. You got, for a while, you got Hong Kong, and Macau, and Taiwan, and South Korea. South Korea would have been destroyed and annexed by the North had the Americans not intervened and led a coalition to keep the South Korean independent. Taiwan probably would have seen constant shelling by the Chinese army. Well, the Taiwanese consider themselves China. It's the one China policy, but that's falling apart lately. Taiwan would have been shelled constantly, especially as China, mainland China, started to surpass them. So, these are just some of the flashpoints around the world that we've really forgotten about. And they could explode at any given moment, but they haven't. 
because of this long piece, the Pax Americana. What worries some, uh, some of the thinkers and book writers, you know, the uh, the intellectuals, if you want to call them that, what has bothered some of them is that this long piece is beginning to unravel. They haven't exactly pieced that together yet, the unraveling. They've just seen that America is increasingly nowhere to be found. They don't realize that that is... that's the ebb and flow of America. Periods of great strength in America are followed by periods of extreme isolationism. We have been engaged for the longest that we've ever been engaged. We have been in this period of great strength since 1945. Now the Cold War is over, and our rationale for maintaining this great strength has disappeared overnight, really. And it's just been falling off ever since. It's one of the reasons I agree with Peter Zion. And because of that, I've been paying attention to this myself. All those flashpoints that America kept subdued, all those uh, hot zones, America has kept frozen. The geopolitical tensions around the world have been frozen by America's influence. But now, those frozen flashpoints are unthawing. The Middle East, um, it's most notable, this unthawing is the most notable in the Middle East, uh, partially because uh, it was never really frozen. The tensions there were never truly frozen, but they were... Uh, greatly watered down the last couple decades we've seen is what peace in the Middle East looks like but now the Americans are energy independent so they really don't care about the oil in the Middle East and they've been engaged in endless war since since the 9-11 attacks in 2001 so people are tired of fighting a war in the Middle East. No one is coming back. No one's coming back. And so the Middle East is becoming violent, more violent by the day, and that unthawing is now accelerating due to that increasing violence because it spreads. It's spreading, and the areas adjacent to them are unthawing the fastest. The Turks have awakened from a century-long geopolitical slumber, and now we have a hot war in the Caucasus. Again, this is all right next to the Middle East. We have a hot war in the Middle East. The Armenia versus Azerbaijan, which has turned in almost turned into a proxy war between the regional powers who are slightly adjacent to the Middle East. The unthawing is spreading. And who knows where this goes? Peter, and I agree with Peter on this, is that he argues we go back to the old way of doing things before America imposed peace. And that is imperial predation of smaller countries. The age of empire, so to speak. 
with no American interest in the packs that it has created, the unraveling will only continue. There is no country who can keep it together. You could have a collection of countries, but those countries don't agree. The Middle East is awake and hot. Russia never slept. Europe is in for a very rude awakening. And the EU is already feeling the consequences of that incoming awakening. The, The Italians are very disillusioned with the EU. The Brits have already left. Hungary and Poland regularly ignore the EU. And Greece is becoming more and more disillusioned with the EU in its skirmish. Well, not skirmish, but dispute. There we go. It's dispute with Turkey over its maritime claims in the Eastern Mediterranean. And it has constantly asked the European Union for help, and the European Union doesn't give it help. This geopolitical unthawing is happening fastest in the regions closer to the Middle East. Greece is closer than the rest of mainland Europe. It's only a matter of time before a lot of these flashpoints spark again. And again, Europe seems to be the least prepared to deal with that. And they will be in for a very rude and probably very violent awakening. And I think this conflict with Armenia and Azerbaijan is just the beginning of something that we are likely to see around the world. Maybe it won't be this year, maybe it won't be next year, but I think this decade is going to be something to look out for. But that's what I have today. That's what I have for today. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty beefy segment on the things and topics that I've compiled over the last week. You know, I think it's interesting. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But pretty sure we can all agree that the world is changing, folks. And stick with me and we're going to have fun watching it together. So till we meet next time. Uh, I've been your host, Hyshawn Wade. You've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. See you next Wednesday. Wednesday. See you next Monday. Servus. Mm-hmm.